How's it going, everybody? And welcome to this next installment of the Stupid Questions podcast. Today on the docket, we have Nicole. I already forgot how to say her name. It's Nicole Farcro. I think if you pronounce it correctly in Italian from her grandparents' uh, ethnic background, or I guess her ethnic background, it is Falcaro. Um, she is a professional triathlete, also a full-time uh, working woman. She works with Citibank. I forget exactly what her title would be, um, but she is a mathematician, so she deals a lot in um, product management and um, like feature development for the different apps and um, customer-facing products that that, cu- that that company has, the bank has. Um, it's really neat to hear her story and how she was involved with startups, um, how she was a dog walker for part of her career and how that was connected to helping her become uh, kind of a breakthrough uh, professional triathlete and have that be manifested and work out. Um, she is getting better and better in all she's doing, so look forward to um, following her along. But without further ado, Nicole Falcaro. Well, great. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast. The first thing I really need to ask is – I'm gonna I'm gonna just say your last name and tell me if I completely butcher it. Is it is it Falcaro or Falcaro? Okay, it's definitely not Falcaro, but I will say this is like I've had this question on other podcasts. It's um I say Falcaro. Okay. But like it's Italian, so I'm supposed to be saying Falcaro. Falcaro. Okay. Nice. Yeah. So you're not wrong either way, but more common is Falcaro. For sure. Okay. Did you, is your, like, how many generations do we have to go back before we get to Italy? Just my grandparents. Okay, nice. Yeah. Where are they from? Um, I think Sicily. It's, like, really bad that I don't know for sure. Sure. <laughs> have you done the 23andMe thing? I have not. I'm not, like, I'm not private about a lot of things, but I do feel weird about some random private company having all of my all like genetic, genetic data <laughs> yeah no that's fair that's totally fair i did the reason i did it is because i i got it for basically for free which maybe isn't <laughs> that good of a reason but <laughs> i was expecting to have a high percentage of italian blood because my great or my great grandparents yeah my great grandparents are full italian but i only have like five percent apparently in my blood most everything else from my dad's side i guess over in uk area so i was a little bummed about that oh wow yeah. I didn't expect that. Yeah, I always was under the impression that it kind of splits up 50-50 for each parent, but I guess some are more yeah. dominant in the in the way that genes are carried over, so. Hmm. Yeah, who knows? But um cool. So, um who is Nicole? If you were to introduce yourself to someone new and you and they're like, "Hey, who, uh my name is Seth. What's your name and who are you?" So, answering in third person and with the theme, mm-hmm. I Nicole is a uh, a very ambitious person who is competing in the professional triathlete category. Notice I didn't say I am a professional triathlete because mm-hmm. I guess I am, but I'm al- I've already switched to first person, so let's just go with that. Okay. But uh, I don't make a living off of it. Um, most of my time is spent, I'd say, to be fair, maybe 30 to 35 hours a week uh, working at my full-time job. Hopefully they don't listen to this because I think I'm supposed to work 40, but I take a, take the generous lunch break and I work at Citibank as a digital product manager. What the heck does that mean? It means that I decide from a business standpoint what it makes the most sense for a development team to be working on. Okay. And I translate those business requirements into what we call user stories that basically says, 
okay, let's go build this feature, this product. And where I focus on is search and self-service and um, uh, features for the website and the apps for Citibank. Okay, sweet. So we're going to touch on those things because I'm going to kind of follow a little bit of a chronological order. So I do want to get into those things and then your other, I guess, happenings before Citibank. But growing up, what was Nicole like? Was she highly high energy, always running? Parents are kicking you into sports to kind of get rid of that energy? Or what kind of kid were you? Yeah, I'm grateful I grew up in a really rural area. So it was very unsupervised. And anytime I wanted to like I don't. I wouldn't say I was super energetic. I was very bookish and very, you know, into completing my homework. I would stay up really late, still do doing work, um, wow. because after school was all about sports. Mm-hmm. And from the age of, I'd say my first sport was little league. So, I like baseball. Yep, yep. Playing baseball with the boys, which looking back was really great because I feel like I was athletic and I didn't want to be just like doing the girl sports. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was nice to be in like a co-ed sport where my dad was the little league coach. That was great. So a very supportive household for athletics. Um, my parents were not athletes themselves. Uh, however, they were super supportive of it. And then okay. my first endurance sport was swimming when I was eight. That was just a summer thing. Um, I wasn't in like any super intense year-round swimming program by any means, which is probably why I my shoulders don't hurt to this day unlike a lot of other summers. I could feel like I could do a lot of a lot of yardage and not really feel any difference. So. Sure. <laughs> yeah. That's really neat. So how many yards are you swimming a week then? Not enough because I'm still not a great swimmer, but um I'm about 15 to, 15 to 18,000. Okay. Yeah, that's not bad. Yeah. Sweet. That's actually really rare. I've never heard of anyone's shoulders not being sore. I mean, I guess from swimming in the pool, you can build that up. But for me, usually first time in the wetsuit, it's like you always got to kind of get used to that rotational yeah. pull. And, yeah. I still get that, actually. The first five minutes, I'm like, wow, like something's not fitting right. And then it just seems to stretch out a little bit. And after mm. five minutes, I always do a shoulder wetsuit adjustment. Yeah. What I've started doing actually for races too is I my buddy works for um, a chemical company that makes the like gold bond, but they're I don't know that body butter stuff. Oh, I yeah. layer that stuff all around my chest and shoulders, and now it never bothers me whenever I race. So I don't know if that would help. But oh, because it's, it's not like clinging on to anything else in your yeah, chest. Yeah, it's just like under the tri suit because it, then it allows it to kind of move. I don't know if you take off your tri suit. I guess women can't really do, it. or no, some women do because they have like a sports bra. They, or yeah. Like but yeah, yeah. Give it a shot. Yeah, I wear the full tri suit underneath, and I feel like just recently I'm watching all these races where they're pulling up their tri suits, and I'm like, I even my swim skin is has sleeves, so it covers that. So I don't. I'm a little incredulous about the the pulling the skin the tri suit down and then having to pull it up again. Like it's enough for me to just yeah, pull down my wetsuit. I don't yeah. want anything else pull back up absolutely not yeah yeah it seems like a lot <laughs> for sure yeah. um so do you have siblings then i do i have two older brothers and a younger sister so i am classic middle child um however we were very spread apart so my sister's five years younger my brother's five years older and then neck my other brother is 15 years older than me wow that's a big spread 
Yeah, it's a huge spread. We never really shared clothes or, and we're, we're friends now, but it was, it's hard having that big of an age gap. Yeah, for sure. Was that, if I may pry a little bit, was that something your parents like planned or were they like, <laughs> we want to have kids every decade? Uh, I don't think it, I don't think it was planned or unplanned. I don't know. I think they just like rolled with it. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. So did you grow up in the Northeast? I did. I grew up in Pennsylvania. Okay. So the northeast corner, it's called Dingman's Ferry. No one's ever heard of it, but um, about 90 miles west of New York City. So if I had to like give a idea, it'd be west of New York City, very close to New York and New Jersey. Okay, nice. So what did you say your parents do? Oh, my mom is a waitress, still is, um, and in New Jersey because it's it's there's more work opportunity out there. So I grew up working at that same restaurant that she still works at. And yeah, so that was, uh, to go on a little tangent, that was a great, great experience. I think everybody should have to work in the food service industry. Yeah. And the, it got me out of my shell a lot. I was actually, I was pretty shy. And when I was 14, my mom's like, do you want to be a bus girl? I'm like, yeah, that sounds good. And so that got me, way out of my shell because I had to talk to strangers so and and then I love I still miss waitressing to this day so I I was bus girl and then cashier and then eventually became a waitress once I was 18 could serve alcohol so wow I feel yeah I've never worked in well I've never worked as like a bus boy or a waiter anything like that in high school I went to a boarding school so I worked in food service in that regard we made food for hundreds of kids which was it was whatever, just opening a bunch of cans and heating stuff up. But do you feel like it, life lessons learned during that phase of your life like help to carry on through your professional career later on? Just because it's you're obviously having to, it's a service based thing. Yeah, I would say that it helped you. It really like gave you an appreciation for the value of hard work because mm. you were being tipped based on how well you did and that can be hard yeah and and I'd say that there were there's the nights got so busy often that I barely saw any of my tips like I I wouldn't know exactly who gave me what and you if you if I did look it would give me it it would you would be surprised sometimes like you have a really nice table and they were lovely people and they order a lot of food and then they gave you like a 10 percent tip and you're like i don't i don't understand but then Mm. you have other people that tip really well but in the on the whole it felt like you were rewarded for the job you did like on the average so i think that is um a good life lesson and a lot of jobs don't work that way but um and just being on your feet for like eight hours, I have so much appreciation for everybody in retail and food service mm. who have to do that. And I don't know how my parents still do it to this day on their feet. Um, I mentioned my mom's a waitress. My dad is a cook at a nursing home and um, does some food service directing, which means that he keeps inventory of what food is there and orders more food when needed. Sure. Um, so they met actually funny. I just watched, um, on HBO class action park, which is a documentary about this like wild, uh, water park in Vernon, New Jersey in the eighties and nineties, um, where like people actually died because it was like so unsafe and sketchy. (laughs) Yeah. 
but but that was located right next to the what used to be the Playboy Club, because the guy's goal was to have like a future Orlando or like future Vegas, like Vegas of the of the East, of the Northeast. And my parents met at the Playboy Club because they both worked there. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I wouldn't have guessed that long-term relationships are built around that kind of establishment, but it worked out for them, <laughs> and, and here we are with Nicole, so that's great. Yep, that's how I was a product of the Playboy Club. <laughs> wow, that's wild. Yeah, yeah. What is story. the Playboy Club, if I may ask? Is that like... It was literally it like, like, it's no longer in operation there, but I believe there's still one open, um, and it's basically, it's a restaurant, it's a resort. Okay. hotel and they hold a lot of events with very high level celebrities and oh. they have bunnies who dress up like the bunnies were the cocktail waitresses mm -hmm. my mom was a food waitress so my mom was not a bunny <laughs> and my dad was a chef in, okay. in the kitchen and that's how they met super interesting wow so food service um there's a lot of family history there so I guess let's go back to high school first. When did you, because you said you enjoyed sports and you kind of started doing that. You swimming, I think you started at eight. When you get to high mm -hmm. school at that point, is that when you started to focus more on running? Exactly. Yeah. I picked up cross country my freshman year. Okay. Uh, I almost did tennis. I did tennis in middle school. And then I just didn't, I didn't like field hockey enough. And it process of elimination, I said, let's try cross country. So I did cross country my freshman year. And then I did softball. My freshman year in spring did not do track and then I did track the following year okay interesting so what was high school like for you because for me I hated high school some of my friends it was like the mm -hmm. golden years and then some people were like college and there's kind of this back and forth what was it like for you it was very busy I still don't know how I went you know had like a toaster strudel in the morning <laughs> oh I forgot about that as well yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Um, my mom always made sure I ate something before I left the house. Like I would eat it in the car on the way to the bus stop. Mm -hmm. Bus came at 703, school from 8 to 238. And it was a long bus ride too. I did a lot of homework on the bus and then had after school activities until, until, six, until like 5, 530. And then there was a six o'clock late bus. And that got me home around seven. And then I would do homework and eat dinner. Wow. And I'm just like, how? I, I, can't, I, I can't even fathom a schedule like that. Yeah, that's super busy. So you got like four hours of sleep a night because you said you're staying up late. and I was up till midnight. And then I would wake up around, honestly, like 6.50. I would roll out of bed, throw on some clothes, and like be at the bus stop by 7.03. Like, wow. <laughs> That's insane. I, I was yeah. always fighting my, my, my high school and even middle school, probably even elementary school experience was my mom knocking on my door every five minutes until it was a full-blown argument because I'm not getting up. Seth, get up. Seth, get up. Seth, get up. So I can't imagine. I was always wanting to sleep. I always needed tons of sleep. So that's interesting well, that you were able to do it that way. That's nice of your mom. My mom just honked the horn in the car yeah. outside. <laughs> Honestly, it probably would have been better. I, I would have learned responsibility at a little bit earlier of an age, I'm sure. Yeah. But, what, but where does boarding school come in? Uh, for me? Yeah. Yeah. So it, I, it's kind of strange. So I did – I changed schools a lot. We moved a lot growing up. So I can't even tell you how many schools I went to, middle school and prior. I kind of kept going into like Christian boarding school and then out and in and out and in and out. 
And then high school, um, it was freshman year at a public high school with like 4,000 kids. And I'm like, no taller than four feet, very small. <sighs> yeah, so didn't really do a lot of sports. Did like JROTC, that stuff. And then sophomore year, for the first half of the year, I went to a boarding academy. And then basically I got so homesick um, when we were about to go on this trip because my mom was dropping me back off because we had like what they call a home leave where you're home for a few days and like i just had this next level panic attack that i've never had before where i I didn't want to separate with my mom so like i went back with my mom back home and i was like i'm not doing this thing so then i ended up going to a local christian school which you know it's interesting they say it's christian um but there was more drugs in that school than there was in even my public high schools so i did that and then i graduated and finished a full year my senior year after a year and a half in this other school back at that original boarding school um which i wish actually i would have finished it would have been good because being on your own in boarding school has its ups and downs but you really did have to learn how to wake up on your own set your own alarm get ready for school make sure you eat in time do your homework there's a lot of you know, stuff you kind of learn in college. Um, so, yeah. It was wild. Wild situation. But. Yeah, learn your independence or a little earlier than I did, I guess. Yeah. Well, Had yeah. my toaster strudel waiting for me in the car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you said you had siblings that were so much older than you, too. So I feel like your parents probably realized, oh, they, my kids can probably figure this stuff out for themselves a little bit more because... Yeah, I've I've noticed in the beginning, parents are usually like super strict, and then as each child is brought forth, there's a, l- a less of an intensity when it comes to parenting. Yeah, I'd say that hold that held true, and I actually feel like I was a lot more better behaved than my brothers, so that made it a little bit easier. And um, so yeah, by the time I was 16, I and could get my permit, I was had my permit, and when I was 16 and a half, I was driving. Yeah, and. Yeah, just because where I grew up, too, it's like you couldn't walk to anything. You couldn't ride to anything. Mm. Um, you had to get driven. Like, even yeah. the closest grocery store was a 15-minute drive, so. Yeah, yeah. I had, that's similar for us. We were in rural North Carolina. Mm. Um, so, with high school, you're finishing high school. You're obviously enjoying your homework, which is more than most 16- to 18-year-olds would say. Uh, you decided to go to college. Did you go to Bucknell College for your entire college career? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was recruited, you know, junior year in high school, and I went on three trips, and Bucknell was by far the best school academically and athletically that I that was interested in me. Yeah. So when I eventually received my academic need-based aid scholarship, I was like it's it was a no-brainer that I chose to go there that's awesome so was mathematics because you have a degree in mathematics tell us about that degree Mm -hmm. is it like a four-year degree and why math yeah uh my I think my high school cross-country coach slash AP calc teacher had a bit of a influence on that so um him being very math oriented and I I liked math I was like math a little bit more than the other subjects so uh, yeah, I just, so I pursued that and it's a four year degree. It's a bachelor of science, meaning, which meant at Bucknell that I had to take some physics courses and understand how to apply math. And, mm-hmm. um, at the upper level at, at that level of math in college though, like things get really wild. Like you're, you're understanding why a derivative or a derivative is a derivative 
you're understanding, you're, you're taking courses like topology, which is a study of spaces. Mm. And you're, it feels like it feels more inventive than discovered where you're, they're inventing new kinds of math so that you then can make, create more things. theories about it. Yeah. It, it gets very, um, very hard, very intangible yeah. at, at those levels. So math was really, I think I had like a C average. It was not an easy major, but yeah. I had took a lot of Spanish courses. I actually have a, a degree in Spanish, oh, a bachelor of arts in Spanish, but, uh, that and that that brought up my GPA, but I'd say in, generally in college I was very focused on being an athlete first and a student mm-hmm. second, and I honestly think it's like the best approach I've ever taken to something like that. Like I was so, like I mentioned, I would stay up to midnight, one a.m. in high school doing homework, but in college, eventually I had to call it a night because yeah. I wasn't going to get through my next session the next day, mm-hmm. like through for running if if I um, stayed up late and at some point you just can't cram any more information. I think I kind of appreciated that and let myself just like go to bed. So very, I think I pulled maybe one all nighter in all of college. Yeah. I was exactly the same, except I wasn't an athlete and I was just (laughs) messing around and never did anything. I did (laughs) a little bit more to the end of my college career, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's really good actually, because a lot of my friends, um, I noticed in college, like they would get super burnt out, especially the pre-med students. They would just drive themselves into the ground, never get any sleep. And I was always like, well, I mean, sleep's got to be number one, most important. And then exercise, because I feel like those put together actually make you a better student. Ultimately. Yeah. yeah they say you need the sleep at night to like even like to process and store information or mm-hmm. else it just like you just forget everything you just studied. So yeah. and I I. I did take the advice in, of my coach who in college who said, like, you know, you're not going to remember that that awesome math class you took. You're not going to remember that exam that you got an A on. You're mm-hmm. going to remember the bus ride, the eight-hour bus ride on your way to Akron, Ohio, to run in a 300-meter indoor track. Yeah. And you're going to remember that Patriot League championship from, like, your your sophomore year where you got super muddy and like and that is so true like mm-hmm. the experiences I had in college were a hundred percent devoted like because of Bucknell cross country and track and field and not like my like I had I did have amazing professors but not like the amazing things I learned because I've forgotten a lot of it <laughs> by now um, of course it of course it helped me get a job right I sure. I got my my the average and I I got a really good job thanks to a track and field connection actually at Citibank so it kind of like it all goes full circle and yeah it's so um definitely appreciate not trying to be the best at absolutely everything and choosing experiences over grades yeah was like I'm lucky I made I chose that path. Yeah, for sure. And then you graduated um, in the f- was it the s- summer of two twenty ten? Two thousand nine. Yeah, spring like May two thousand nine. Okay. And yeah. so I read that, and I just want to read this little blurb I took off your bio. I graduated Bucknell yeah. with a mathematics degree and moved to New York City in twenty ten, lured by a promising tech startup with a salary just big enough to afford the occasional burrito dinner for them from the neighborhood of my first apartment in gritty Spanish Harlem. So a few questions here. First question, 
Um, what was the tech startup? Second question, did you choose Spanish Harlem because you had a minor in Spanish? Ah, uh, no, but it helps. Um, okay, so first question. The startup was called Stella Service, and it got acquired by Medallia after they let me go in, like, mm. 2017. And that that's actually an integral part to my story because 2017 was the year that I was a dog walker oh. because I didn't have a job. And I was in New York, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I need something to just not dip into my savings too much. So I started dog walking, and all in the Upper East Side. And um, that was the year where I made a huge jump in my performance. Mm-hmm. And it, I'll get to your second question in a minute. Yeah, but uh, it wasn't that performance jump wasn't because I was working out much more at all because I, I had dog walks from like 8 a.m. to like 5 p.m. with like random breaks in the middle. It was because I was standing up, I was walking around, I wasn't sitting at my desk. And I was sleeping well, and I had, like, absolutely no stress. So um, I attribute, and that was the year that I earned my pro license for a triathlon. Mm-hmm. So it, it all it's all connected. But, um, so, yeah, so the company was Stella Service, and I was the first employee. And they were two Bucknell grads who I linked up with. And, yeah, later got acquired. And then... The reason I chose Spanish Harlem was strictly because of affordability. Mm -hmm. And it was a friend of a friend, also a Bucknell connection, that um, had an opening in their apartment. And it was, it used to be the living room, but they made it a bedroom kind of thing. So uh, I'll never forget, it was only like 700 a month. And I was on uh, 91st and 1st. So I was a little bit south of Spanish Harlem, but... um, I had dog walking clients there eventually. And yeah, so I was $700 a month apartment in the Upper East Side slash Spanish Harlem and um, making a very small salary, but enough to like pay my student loans. So, uh, and I thought it sounded like a lot of money compared to my parents. So I was like, oh yeah, this is a great job. (laughs) Yeah. I'm curious before I ask another question, then we can get to the other question I asked. Dog walking. That obviously is a very much a city thing. How much money does one make walking dogs for a, a living? So this was the height of the apps, of the dog walking apps. Basically, we had Rover and there's another WAG. And I priced myself really low. I only priced myself at $15 for a half hour walk. And then the app took 20% of that. So oh, I was so making was like... App. I should have known. <laughs> yeah, so I was making like twelve dollars a half hour, twenty four dollars an hour, oh, that's not and bad. then it's not it's not bad if you can book yourself up. So like I priced myself low so I could get a bunch of clients, and you only walk one dog at a time, and that's oh, a big that's part nice. of the service you offer is that you have like one on one time with someone's dog. And in the Upper East Side, people really like that because they're like, I want my dog to be with only one person, and yeah. um, like it was kid. a what's that? It's like their kid. They, a lot of people treat their dogs a little bit more like oh, yeah. child nowadays. Yeah. There wasn't a walk that I did that I didn't send like a really nice photo back to the owner. Like, hey, nice. cute caption. And, um, and <laughs> cute caption. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, and it was a great way to see different types of living s- establishments in New York and different apartments, different professions. 
and about a third of my clients were home when I walked their dog. They just didn't feel like walking their dog. Wow. <laughs> Must be nice. Why do that? If I could pay Nicole fifteen dollars to do it yeah. for me. Exactly. So with the um what was the name of the startup again? Stella Service. Stella Service. So what yeah. was the product and I assume because you were employee number one or three of you, you're doing pretty much everything. But what was that evolution like as you guys grew to 60 employees? Yeah, it was a, a company that rated customer service of online retailers. Okay. So they would basically mystery shop the top 100 retailers and provide that information back in the form of competitive intelligence so that companies understood where they should best allocate their resources. So let's say I, we secret shop, we send L.L. Bean an email once a day for a month, and we send the same similar email to um, a competitor like REI, I guess, and mm -hmm. we say like, hey, REI responded in like one hour on average, but you guys took four. Like, what's up with that? Like, maybe you should staff up your oh, call center or yeah. So it was competitive intelligence. And then they spun off to create more of a customer driven feedback. So like how you get that email after you've had a live chat or an email thread or a call with an agent, you would get an email back saying, Hey, how was your service? And how, like, how was your call with like Athena? What she loved, by the way, she loves to camp and, she likes to pay people to walk her dog. What would mm. you, how would you rate her? And it was more gamified. So it'd be like, do you think she deserves a high five, a nap during work hours or like dinner on the company? And then you kind of like rate that. So then it was immediate feedback for call center oh, agents okay. so that they could understand, like get feedback real time. And so it was, it was very like gamified yeah. uh, customer service feedback. That's really interesting. So how much did the company <laughs> sell for? Do you know? Uh, I I don't know, but I think it's public. And it I got public. like, I got a, a couple, a little bit of a kickback from that from like. Um, Some equity that you built up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it was honestly, it was like looking back at how much I made my first and second year, it was like, well, I should have, I should have just gotten that that much anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I wish them well. And um, yeah, it, it did help a, a little bit thinking from the customer standpoint in my current job mm -hmm. where we're building products and features that customers use and thinking about what they would want to see in, in their, if we were in their shoes. Yeah. So it sounds like a lot of data and now analysis, like are you looking at heat maps of how they use apps or you're just like taking raw feedback that they give you or like it's a mixture of all those things. It is. That's a, yeah, that's a great question. And you kind of already answered it. You're looking at, um, what the obviously what the data is showing you so for for me if i'm looking at some search data i'm looking at what are they typing but also what are they clicking and is something like a type ahead or some people call it auto suggest where you see yeah. suggestions as you type is that something that's helpful and how do we prove that it's helpful and is it is it worth the development team building that out so that like what is the what's the ultimate goal right the ultimate goal is a customer who uses search finds what they need, There's, it's a better experience, it's less frustration, and we see that they end up not needing to use live chat or call. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at like the very, the big picture as well. Yeah. 
So one of your goals, it sounds like, is to how do I put this? Avoid the need for a person, like an, a live person, to connect with them to solve their problem. Like you're trying to figure mm-hmm. out how to just. Yeah. As a customer, let me tell you, I hate that. Yeah, you hate calling, or you hate. No, I like call- someone I avoiding. Want- yeah, someone avoiding me because, like, sometimes I mean, I have rarely encountered an AI chatbot or like a help form that like just answers my specific question because. And maybe it's because I'm a little bit more tech savvy, so I know how to kind of do most things. I'm not going to call someone the, I can't open my bank account number or whatever, something like that. It's more of like technical stuff. So it's probably different for other people, to be fair. But it always is so frustrating when you're working with a company and it's like, I just need to get to the phone to tell them my unique situation to fix this problem. But yeah, that's neither here nor there. Probably not great podcast material for anyone listening. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I know. I could like really talk about this all day, like. We have different like customer personas that we're thinking about. So we're thinking about someone like you who is like digital first, wants to solve their problem on their own, mm-hmm. knows when they need to call, and someone who's like refuses to download an app even though it, they could cash a check without going to their bank, right? Like some people don't even still don't use like mobile check deposit. So yeah. it's like, yeah. yeah, we're thinking about all of the types. Yeah, yeah, you got a lot of large customer base. Yeah. Um, so then after you did dog walking, like you immediately kind of went over to Citibank and that, that happened at the same time that you were going professional? Yeah, so dog walking was 2017 and that's where I earned my pro card. Okay. Um, I By winning, like, I think I won every amateur race I did that year and that was when we still had, like, awesome. Escape from Alcatraz Philadelphia. Okay. We had, uh, or I think they called it, like, Escape Philly because... Who doesn't want to leave Philly? Because it's a. <laughs> yeah. I'm so like after living in New York for ten and a half years, I'm so, um, I'm so like, I it's hard for me to like other cities. <laughs> I'm like such yeah. a New York snob. But anyway, um, Escape Philly, uh, New York City try, which is still around. Um, but yes, yeah, so I earned my pro license in t- 2017 and immediately said, "Yep, next year I'm going to race pro." in 2018 and that 2018 is when i started working at city okay nice so as you move into the pro fields you're going from winning all of your amateur races to like i imagine not winning all of them what was you could say i was like mid to back of back like three quarters back yeah yeah and it seems like that's like how the progression of things usually typically go what was that like mm-hmm. mentally? Like as you're building through it, like was it um, obviously was it expected, or how have you dealt with that? Or how oh, did completely you expected. It reminded me of when I went to Bucknell and the coach said, "Yeah, you'd probably be like between 15th and 20th out of our 25 women, like day one." And I'm like, "Great, like room to grow." Yeah. And I felt like when I was placing, let's I think my my first race ever was Oceanside, so I really like dove head first. Yeah, and that's a big race. Yeah, I think it was, like, 16th out of, like, 22 or something. And I was, like... Not last. That's awesome. Yeah. And I was, like, I feel like I can... I feel like now I can benchmark myself and say, okay, I am the 16th woman at this race. You know? So, it it feels like a fair benchmark of where exactly how good I am and how much further I could could go. Mm -hmm. Whereas, I feel like if you're just, like, beaten up on the amateur field, it's, like, well, what's the point at... It's just like, that's just ego then. If you're yeah. like proud of yourself or like winning all these races, like, like level up. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Keep moving on. So, did you ever, once you made that decision and started racing pro, because you've been racing for what five or six years now, um, mm-hmm. were you ever like, oh, maybe this wasn't the right decision? Uh, no, I never, I never looked back. I never like, I never second guessed it. Um, I'd say I hit like a performance plateau in 2019. So I hired a new coach. So I had, I hired Julie Dibbins, um, Mm -hmm. out of Boulder, Colorado. So she coaches like Lauren Brandon, Tim O'Donnell, Laura Siddle, and, uh, Andre Lopez, and so she she's she's got like a really good roster, yeah. And uh, yeah, so I hired her and um, upped my training a bit by maybe from like twelve to a consistent sixteen hours a week, and with opportunities for training camps. Yeah, that's awesome. Is it you? And I imagine you probably can't share this, but is it relatively mm-hmm. expensive to have a coach of that caliber that you're hiring? Yeah, and. I, I like to talk about money in general. Like I, I don't shy away from like a close friend, or, like telling them what I earn in salary, because I think it only hurts us when we're not sharing information. Um, Sweet. Yeah. I, I, I'll tell you offline, like how much Julie is, but I know that from sharing, comparing notes with other professionals that you're looking at a minimum of 300 for like a good coach. Who's actually going to look at your data Yeah, like up to, yeah, like up to maybe eight hundred. Um, so yeah, I, between three and eight, I'm giving a big range, but is like what you should expect. Anything less than that, there's they probably don't have the, the they probably have a lot of clients and they don't have the time to really look at your data. So yeah, for sure. Um, how long did you have a coach prior to Julie? Was that in your, Ever in your career? S- yeah. Yeah, ever since I started triathlon, I had a coach. So as soon as I decided I wanted to try it, I hired a coach out of, he lives, still to this day lives in the Bronx, and coach Jonathan Kane. And he, I've always hired coaches who are very, have a good science background. So he has his master's in exercise physiology. Mm-hmm. And I believe Julie has an advanced degree as well. And um, he and his his wife, he was like my like my assign, give me assignments coach. And his wife was Nicole Sinqui, who's like an amazing, amazing person and mm-hmm. athlete herself. Um, she was more of like my mental coach and I'm still very close with her to this day. And um, I, I was babysitting their child at the time mm-hmm. as, as well. And that was, which they also were so generous. They also pay me to do that. But um so that was able to like fund some of my triathlon costs was I was babysitting mm-hmm. and he was giving me free coaching and um, yeah. So that was, I'm very fortunate to have that start and True. even just like um, barring equipment. And mm-hmm. I think it took me like, I remember it took me about four years till I was no longer borrowing something that I was racing with. Yeah. It just like takes, it's just the barrier it's to entry is so high. It's so high. Yeah. I'm right there with yeah. you. That's interesting. Um, so then you said you had that performance plateau. How did you, like, what exactly did that mean? Like, you just weren't getting faster on the bike? And then once you switched coaches, how did you know you made the right decision? Because you started to climb above that? Or was it literally just a volume thing? Or It was it was volume, which we want to be careful about because I work full-time. So it's, it's 
I'm always eager to do more, but um, yeah, so it's a slight increase in volume, but also the opportunity for having training camps and surrounding myself and just, it was a bit of like, I wanted to feel like more of a professional and um, it sounds so silly because it was two weeks out of the whole year, but being at a training camp and then seeing those same people at races where you felt just more legitimate mm-hmm. was a big reason for me going with Julie. So, um, yeah, that was, that was a lot of my motivation to, to switch over. And it, it's just in New York, like you don't really hear about like other professional, you hear sometimes about professional triathletes coming out of New York, like, um, um, Sarah Piampiano was, uh, based in New York before, um, getting coached and going full time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I just, I wanted to feel more legitimate too. Yeah. No, that's really good. And then mm-hmm. what, when you like got beyond that performance plateau, what did that feel like? What, what, what did you notice first? I noticed I was biking a lot faster. I, and I wasn't, I was putting out a, a, only a little bit more power, but where I was applying my power in a race on a, like, specific to that course was smarter. So Hills versus flats versus... Yeah, so I used to ride, like, the same power the whole race, like, as if I were on erg mode. And then when I... To, to have a boost in performance, I was much more, you know, like, really going hard on the climbs, um, getting more aerodynamic on the descents and, like, working on my handling so that I would be feel confident to do, mm-hmm. enough to do that. Getting, um, making turns better, like mm-hmm. kind of hit a little bit of handling, but, a, and then like getting out of a turn, like yeah. getting back up to speed is something that, um, I made a big difference in. And I still continue to get faster on the run because I think my bike was taking less out of me. Mm-hmm. So even though my overall power was only a little bit higher, my speed was way higher and then my ability to run off the bike was a lot better. Yeah. So on the descents for ones that have significant descents, are you pulling back on power then and just getting arrow and narrow and like holding? Or are you, yeah, what are you doing? Yeah, I'm like once I, I'm looking at the miles per hour, once I see that I'm going like above 35, it I will do a legal tuck. I used to super tuck when it was loud. I didn't care. But now I do, like, the legal tuck, and I just check to make sure that I'm actually, like, speeding up. Okay, so, nice. Yeah, Good and tactic. I have, like... I didn't a, ever think about that, yeah. Yeah, and I have... I've noticed more... I've, I get bike fits every year, and I'm now... I feel like I'm pretty optimized, and I have, like, a natural fairing. Like, you can interpret that correctly. Like... So that... Is your arrow <laughs> my chest. down? Or, okay. My chest. I have, like, a natural fairing, so I don't okay. have to do the bottle thing. Okay. And I also feel like I've just like, I'm super, Julie has me focus on this during trainer workouts, especially, um, staying narrow. But yeah, just like getting, like staying super narrow, keeping my head low and like being able to hold that position for just uh, over two hours or over five in a, in a full, yeah. in a full Ironman. Yeah. That's interesting. You mentioned the fairing thing. Cause a lot of the guys now I've seen water bottles, but now like all of uh, Lionel Magnus, whoever they're putting like literally a camel back there, like a, a bladder with a little straw. I was thinking about doing yeah. that. The weekend, but I've seen that as well. And that just, and that, and then they don't have to stop an aid station. Um, but I okay. imagine you would have 
to get used to that with the weight just like pulling yeah. yourself down. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not willing to try that. I still think it looks really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, you would have laughed then seeing me. I did Ironman Wisconsin and I had a giant bottle and then I'm running through transition and it's like bouncing. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is like terrible. But it worked out pretty good, actually. It didn't bother me too bad, but who knows if it actually helped anything. My coaches give me a hard time because it's like pointing way over here sometimes. And uh, over here. So, no, I definitely it. think like there's enough sci- enough studies that show that it does help, um, especially men, men more than women. But it, yeah. I've heard of it helping women as well. Yeah. Um, I, I Right now, my kit is so, so tight, like so skin tight, like the It'd real tri-squad Jack Crew kit. That, like, I can't imagine fitting anything else in there. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you're you're in Portsmouth, New yeah. Hampshire. Yeah. Um, was st- looking on Strava to see if you're still there, and you currently yeah. are. So, you say you really love the roads there for biking and running, but are the winters not absolutely brutal? So, being so close to the coast, we get spared a lot okay. with some of the bigger storms that come in. But if you simply, like, it'll example it'll be you know maybe three inches of snow here and then you go an hour especially two hours northwest over to the white mountains oh yeah like multiply it by five to ten and that's how many inches that they have wow so you you, you, it's like kind of sad sometimes you'll be like oh it's snow and then you're like oh now it's like sleet and now it's rain and now it's kind of gone but yeah, we definitely have the ocean effect. Like if you, you probably saw my Strava on my road yesterday, I'm riding along the ocean. Mm-hmm. Like I am right now, I'm less than a mile from like the port. I wouldn't say ocean because it's a port. And then like if I want to go to like the beach, I'm two miles. No, that's not bad. Yeah. So is no, it like, I mean, what's temperature right now outside? Like is it starting to get pretty chilly? Uh, yeah, it gets like at six, below 60 at night. We have, we're having so like a, a pretty warm week, so it's like the high is like seventy two. Okay. Um. So it's like That's great sleeping weather. weather. Yeah. Yeah. But next, I mean, any minute now, it's going to be like the high is going to be more like sixty to sixty five. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Even down here, actually, it's been really nice lately. We've been in the low f- mid to low fifties at night, and then up in the eighties a day. So it's been oh, yeah. about perfect. And Tennessee is usually like this time of year still stupid hot. Um. But yeah, it's been not not too bad. So how did you get involved with RTS uh, or the Real Triathlon Squad, the team? Yeah. So I've I've always – I really had admired them, and I was teammates with Lisa Bacaris, um when she was coached by Julie. Mm-hmm. So I knew her. I knew Leslie from my trips to Boulder. Um, and that is – yeah, so that's who I knew personally. And then I was actually invited to be part of the squad, which – I was shocked because I would have like reached out to them if I knew that they were interested in somebody who works full time Mm because they had Tamara, but she was at the time working like part time. Yeah. And I was like, oh, they're not going to they're not going to be interested in me. But uh, yeah. So Nick Chase reached out to me and invited me to join the squad. And then I gave him reasons that I should be on the squad because it still seemed like he was like just like planting the seed for me and that he was interested in other people as well Mm -hmm. so then I was like oh okay like I'm gonna tell you why I should be on the real tri squad yeah and so yeah so I joined yeah yeah so it's been um I'll anticipate your next question it's been awesome having it again adding to that more legitimacy and Mm -hmm. when I'm at races there's I think there's maybe been one race where there wasn't at least one other person 
and that was Iron Man Mont Tremblant. Mm-hmm. So there's always someone to bounce ideas off of, like, oh, did you see that thing at like mile ten? Or like, hey, how are you gonna like how are you gonna approach the course and where are you gonna line up in the swim? It's like it's little things like that that make it really helpful. And then just having somebody, another body out there on the course knowing that your teammates are racing. Yeah. Is is really great. And then and then add to that more more training camps, mm-hmm. more potential for travel, like uh, having similar accommodations. Yeah. And um, and then like bouncing in the, and then if something comes up like I had a question about lay, overnight layovers with my bike and how that would work and then just, you know, asking the group chat and getting good answers. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. How long have you been on the team now? Just under a year. So I joined technically this was my first year. Nice. Is it, and you don't have to share this if you don't want to, but, you know, in being on a team like that, because it seems like there's more of them coming up and there's obvious benefits to being on a team, but are there, like, benchmarks that you are required to meet to, like, stay on the team? Or is the idea just you guys want to build a clan together so you can build more media following and, like, that can help with sponsorships and things like that? Like, what's the overall idea of everything? Yeah, so Nick's talked about this on some other podcast so um i'm not sharing anything i'm not supposed to so his his ideology is to have rather than having like me reach out to envy and be like hey envy you should give me wheels and sponsor me Mm -hmm. it's much it's much more in envy's interest to sponsor a group of eight pro triathletes and have better penetration in the pro field Mm -hmm. and know that Real Tri Squad is itself is going to have the funds to distribute to socialize. Hey, Envy is our our wheel sponsor, right. and Envy is going to have their lo- Envy is assured that their logo is going to be on all of our kits, um, and that and and that Real Tri Squad says like you know we have four at least four of us are doing Los Cabos in November. Well, of course we're going to like get content, and yeah, we we just need like one you know, like one photographer or videographer who can then like make really cool media for us. Mm-hmm. So it's like kind of like pooling resources together um, so that as a team, we can better socialize our current sponsors. Yeah. No, that's good. That's really interesting. So mm-hmm. to stay on the team, do you have to do anything specific? Is Nick like, you got to win three races or? Um, there are participation requirements but absolutely not performance requirements cool that's good yeah that makes me feel less anxious so yeah and then we get we get we do there are performance bonuses wrapped in intertwined with real tri squad nice so real tri squad has a a bankroll and they're like ready to just dish out money then (laughs) (laughs) not quite there yet not quite there but um yeah there's there's a lot going there's like a lot that and that Nick, our manager, Nick Chase is um, pursuing with like yeah. uh, the Super League team. Mm-hmm. And we have a developmental squad as well. So we have some like more rookie pros. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, there are a couple to And we have like a we have like an an age group contingent where you like. Yeah, there's some benefits there. There's no cost to be like an age group. You don't have to wear the kit or anything. You yeah. just like get the newsletter and you can meet up with us in um, 
at some of the races where there's a lot of us. Yeah, cool. You are not going to be at Augusta, are you? Or are you going for fun just to, no? No, and you know, it's funny, like, it, it's a lot like Maine. Funny, Maine's also Augusta, the okay. uh, the Maine in, that I did in July, where the course would suit me mm-hmm. because it's a downriver swim like Maine was, and it's a somewhat rolling bike. There's like four significant hills. I did Augusta mm-hmm. in 2021, and then the run is... Maine's run is a little bit more flat, but uh, Augusta, Georgia is like really flat. Yeah. And I just, I just, well, I did Ironman Montreal now five weeks ago. And so it would have been a big ask to turn around and do a 70.3 this weekend. But I just don't like that town. And if I'm not feeling the location, then I am a lot, feel less incentivized to race. Interesting. Why don't you like the town? Uh, bad experience? I I don't know. I j- like nothing bad happened when I was there, but I just didn't love the I hate the word vibes. I didn't but I didn't like the vibes. I didn't I really didn't like the run course that being so pancake flat and I don't know. Like I I just need at this point, like I, it's not my job to to race. So sure. if I'm not like loving the idea, then I, I don't do it. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> do you think you'll ever make like? Is there a benchmark that you have to hit to make a switch? Or like I'm doing triathlon full time. Yeah, I would. I would have to have a performance like I did in Maine seventy point three every single weekend of my life. <laughs> yeah. How did you do at that like race? A, I was third, okay. so it was my first professional podium so that was thank you so that was like a really big deal for me and it was like two hours away so it's like sort of local Mm -hmm. but um financially I don't stomach not being financially stable financially independent really well um having grown up in a very blue collar household Mm -hmm. um it was like we absolutely did not had didn't have like money to throw around yeah so I don't ever feel, I never feel like I can save enough. So I would never, unless I, like I said, had a weekend like that every weekend of my life, I wouldn't feel comfortable. Like I couldn't stomach the stress of having to perform well. Yeah. You know, I get to perform well because I don't have the stresses yeah. of having to make a paycheck. Yeah, for sure. How many fulls have you done then? You said this recent one five weeks ago. That's it. That was my first one. Yeah, Montreblant. Yeah, what was that experience like? I, uh, I well, I got seventh, so That's really uh, good. to go straight to the punchline, I feel like I, I did within my control everything that I could do. Meaning, I executed my race plan that Julie gave me, like to the to a T. I executed my nutrition plan to a T, and I. I left no stone unturned in terms of that nutrition. Be- um, Julie works with a guy, Jared Berg, who's uh, an also an exer- I think it's exercise physiologist. He has yeah. his his PhD, and he when we're when I'm in Boulder visiting, or when we're at camp, he's there taking our lactate, um, giving us uh, nu- doing like nutrition talks and. I had done, so I had, I consulted with Jared before 
Montremblant to make a nutrition plan. And I knew my sweat loss rate, so the just the volume of sweat that I lose mm-hmm. in a similar as much as I could. Like it was like like seventy and really humid. Yeah. Here and at Montremblant. And I know my sweat percentage mm-hmm. because Nick at again, keep going back to camps, but you learn a lot. Nick Chase did like a precision fuel and hydration sweat test. So I know that I sweat a thousand milligrams per liter. So I knew like all this like really important piece of data and I know how much, how many carbs I've been intaking in a 70.3 and what my goal power on the bike and pace was on the run. And from all those numbers, Jared and I figured out, okay, this is exactly how much you need to intake. And, um, yeah. So anyway, um, yeah. Just really nailed my nutrition. I swam exactly like to the second what my average pace per 100 meters was. What was and, your time? Uh, an one hour and one minute and some change. Nice. So that's 135 per 100 meters. Nice. Which isn't amazing, but I, I did the... It's your first one. F- yeah, and I did the final three quarters on my own with like no... Just all by feel. Just being like, yeah, I think this is my pace. And it, it got oddly spread apart. We had Rachel Zelinskis swimming like a 50. And then I, someone else swam like a couple, another group in like 55. Mm-hmm. And then I came in at like a minute, uh, sorry, an hour and a minute. And then the next woman behind me was like a, an hour, four minutes. So. Yeah, that is spread. Yeah. And then I did, ex- uh, Julie gave me a 10 watt range for my bike and I hit that range. And then on the run, I I actually went slower than expected. And I, which is a bummer because I was pretty close to the best, the fastest run of the day. I was second fastest, but wow. I did three hours, 11. And um, yeah, and that was my, my first marathon and my first run over 18 miles. So, so the longest run during training you did was 18 miles? Yeah. Nice. yeah and that was in February because ever since then I've been having like this, uh, I think I figured it out, but I have like this arch slash big toe issue where I'm just kind of like rolling around okay. my arch to avoid bending it. So, yeah. So we were on like a very low mileage run program. And so, yeah, I was like super thrilled. Like, and I, I and to just come out unscathed. I was like, I just, I heard so many stories. I didn't want to like, permanently like tear my fascia or something and I um and I didn't want to have that story of like oh I like I had a walk for two miles but then I started running six flat like (laughs) I just like didn't need the hero story I just wanted to have a good day yeah so my Ironman experience was like was I racing I guess because I was in a race but I was more executing a plan than I was like being competitive those are usually the best races I get, it, honestly, it reminded me of how I used to do 70.3, where I was just like, like, uh, blinders on, yeah. execute, and don't care about anyone around me. And it took me until last year where I was finally like confident enough and experienced enough where I said, no, if I see a girl up the road and I know her and I know her biking ability and like in this, in this female pro field, we kind of all know what each other are capable of, I'm going to go try to get her. 
I'm not just going to be like, nope, I don't want to search. Like, there's, you're, I feel like, feel like I'm actually racing after, this is my sixth year professionally. So my, after five years of professional racing, um, I finally feel like I can race the race. Yeah. Some of that is also because like, I'm, I'm like a mid pack swimmer, so I'm not at the front, but I work my way up to the front and or close to the front at least. Mm-hmm. But if I want a chance in hell at getting on a podium or or even in the in the money, I know I need to be aware of like who's up the road for me and can I start catching women on the bike mm-hmm. and not just leaving it up to having a great run. Yeah, for sure. What? How deep does the money go in Ironman and seventy point three and full in the pro field? It depends. So. In like a fifth, so in like uh, there's like a prize money chart, but the minimum prize money is fifteen thousand purse, which means that it pays out to the top five. Okay. In a course, in a race like um, and and they these courses it changes sometimes how much the purse is, but in a course in a race like Boulder seventy point three, where there's generally a bigger it doesn't matter how big the field is, but sure. in like a bigger race like Boulder, the prize purse is either thirty thousand or fifty thousand, which then means that it pays out to the top eight okay. in a fifty thousand. Well, probably start wrapping up here. I just want to had a couple of final questions. First one: Do you coach? No, I have no time. <laughs> yeah. I've also, like, I've actually, like, a big part of it is I would feel so responsible for someone else's success, Mm. and that would weigh on me. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's my reasons for not coaching. Okay. So what is your, and do you have, like, a long-term plan slash goal for everything you got going in life right now, or is it just like, yeah, live in the moment and make it happen as it happens? I'm, I'm, like... I have to, like, force myself to set goals, which is, like, sounds so silly. Like, I I love, I love progress. I love, like, completing my workouts. But when it comes to long-term thinking, I'm so, I think, well, I think it's a little overrated because, like, often when you set goals, you're just, like, saying things that sound good. Mm -hmm. And I'm much more of, like, and, like, when I set goals, like, I find myself saying, like, top three at an Ironman event. Like that was my goal for like five years. And then I finally did it. But like, yeah, I'm not going to lie. It took me a downriver swim, a really technical bike and um, a really solid run to do it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I don't really set like super long-term goals. Like I just like, I, I do, I am like super motivated right now after like my best season ever. And there's, arbitrary like things are always inherently arbitrary right like top three in an Ironman that's just because three make the podium and I could say I want to be top 100 in the PTO right now 107 but top 100 that's again that's arbitrary right it's just like why 100 because it's a round number so I'm like super I get like I'm super almost like too realistic when it comes to like goal setting Okay, so I mean that's interesting. I, when, I think I read in your bio that you were like 150, so now you're 107. That's a significant jump. Oh yeah, I wonder when I, which when I last updated that bio on my homepage. I think homepage, it was like 21 just... or two. But yeah, lately on the home on my like website homepage, I just I think I actually do list the number. Huh? I should just say like, hey, just click 
go here to see my latest ranking, but yeah, there you go. No one really nice. cares. Like nobody cares. Like I think that all the time, like when I'm like, like yesterday I was, I had an hour and a half to do like an hour 40 bike ride. So I'm like, all right, where, where can I trim? Yeah. And I get to a construction area and this, like the guy just like makes like, it, it was like a supposed to be two way road, but they now need yeah. to work on half the road. So it's a one way. And like, I'm on my bike. So I'm like, do I go on the sidewalk? Like, do I do the right thing? And I sit here and wait and like <laughs> be frustrated. And the guy just like, like guy holding the stop, the stop sign that slash slow sign mm-hmm. makes direct eye contact with me. And you could tell he's like, you better not go bitch. And I'm just <laughs> like, Oh my God. But like, and I just want to be like, but I have a work call and I have a meeting and I have to do three by seven minutes at 205 Watts. And like, he, he doesn't give a fuck. Like he, he's like, I'm here to hold my sign. And if you're privileged, you work remotely. Like if I actually got right, if I actually got into it, he's like, you're telling me you didn't leave early enough for your ride. Just very typical. Now you're going to be five to 10 minutes late in your meeting and you work remotely. Like I'm out here with a sign from probably 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. And I don't care. (laughs) Nobody but you cares. you didn't talk to him, so you really don't know. He could have been the <laughs> nicest guy. He could have been like, you know what, go on. <laughs> uh, the, look, the look on his face, he was not inviting small talk. So. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I need to start carrying around, like, or just carry around, like, $50 bills. But here, no. Yeah, like, like, it's not worth It's not That's worth a very $50. expensive. That's more than nutrition. I'm not sure I'd do that. Yeah. <laughs> Throw goo at him. Yeah, there you go. Enjoy this. You can survive off this for 45 minutes. Oh, man. Um, I was going to ask one more question to kind of close it off. Oh, yeah. Because you got third, um, did you qualify for world champs next year? Oh, man. No, only the top two. Oh, are you serious? So are you going to, like, shoot for that next year? If it happens, you're going to book your ticket and go? Yeah, I think I think I need like I need something like that to like get me to go to New Zealand or else I'll be like someday and then I won't go. But I love that these that racing gets me to places that I wouldn't else think about going to. Um, And I did qualify for Lottie in Boulder. I placed seventh in Boulder, but it was late in the window. So it rolled down to me. And wait, was I? I was six that boulder. I think no, you were six. That's your yeah. Website. Doesn't matter. I I chose not to go. I did not accept my roll down, and I had time to think about it too because they canceled awards on the spot and they did it by email. But yeah, I had this long term goal of this. It was a long term goal of doing a full Ironman, and I chose Montremblant because I could drive to it because mm-hmm. I wanted to eliminate some of the travel stress, and I wanted my parents to come. Yeah. And it was the first time my parents needed a passport to travel somewhere. So they got their passports just to come watch me race. That's and cool. I got the Airbnb for us and they had like a lo- they had absolutely lovely time. But it was really important for them to watch me race. They had never watched me race professionally and never been out of the country. Oh, that's cool. With needing a passport. They've been to Canada, but back when you didn't need a passport. So, yeah. That was like a really special trip and really important for me. So, yeah, yeah. No, that's huge to have family there for support. That's awesome. So, are you going to do another Ironman next year? I think so. I would like, I'm like, the whole point, the whole reason I did an Ironman this year was I'm curious what I can do. 
and um, and it wasn't like I mentioned with my foot, it wasn't an ideal buildup, but I think with a bit more run volume, I can like the six really months leading it. up to it, what I hit that 18 miler I did in February, it was a high of 17 degrees on that run. <laughs> then I didn't run over 13 miles for the next six months. So anyway, That's with a really proper buildup, yeah. yeah, with a proper buildup, I'm curious what I could do. Um, but yeah, I, and I'll have to see where I do it. It's it definitely has to be an inspiring place and a place that will suit me. Like, which basically means like not an ocean swim because at this point I love. I like a rolling bike. I like a flat bike. I think my low CDA really helps. I'm starting to embrace embrace that a bit. And and the run, I obviously the hillier the better, just because it would allow me to show my run skill. Sure. Or my run fitness, but if it's flat, then it's flat. It's fine. Yeah, interesting. Cool. Well, it'll be fun to follow your journey. Um, we'll make sure to link everything as much as possible in the show notes. Uh, best place to pe- for people to follow you, probably Instagram. Is there any other yeah. things you want to push? Com- most update Instagram, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, we'll make sure to list it. Um, but yeah, best of luck for, I guess, November, Los Cobos. Yeah, and Los Cobos. And- Los si. Cabos, yeah. Si, nice. senor. Yeah. I don't have a Spanish minor, so it's tough. <laughs> well, good deal. Well, thank you so much for jumping on. It's been super fun. Yeah, thank you so much, Seth. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Stupid Questions with Nicole. It, it was a great honor. Um, we had lots of fun. Um, it was really cool to hear her story of how she started out with cross-country running and then moving into the triathlon world. Um, looking forward to seeing how she does in her upcoming races here in November with Los Cabos. Um, yeah, just big, again, thank you to her for coming on. If you want to follow her, check out the show notes. Uh, we'll link her Instagram and everything there. Um, also want to start mentioning, if you guys want to help this podcast grow, I would ask that whatever platform you are on, please give it a, I don't know if it, like, um, a heart or a, what is it? A, um, a follow or a review, um, would really appreciate that. It helps us grow. Um, also go check out the podcast on YouTube as well. If you'd like to follow it there. Um, this episode is brought to you by Trek Shorts. Make sure to check them out as well. Cool guy starting that company, Conrad, who will, excuse me, not Conrad, Connor, who will be a professional triathlete before too long. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening in and we will see you in the next one.